Hello and welcome back to Security Insights, the podcast that takes a deeper look at today's most important issues in cybersecurity and beyond. I'm Stephen Pritchard, editor and presenter. Over the last few years, a new form of conflict has come to the fore. The so-called grey zone exists between peace and war. Also known as sub-threshold conflict, Western governments and their armed forces are trying to find ways to approach events that don't fit a conventional definition of warfare or even an established counterinsurgency response. And the grey zone is not only a challenge because it sits outside those conventional definitions. Grey zone threats lean heavily on technology, from drones to disinformation, and cyber attacks are inevitably part of the mix. Defence and security company Kinetic recently wrote a report, Confidence in Chaos, which examines grey zone conflict and what it means for businesses and supply chains, as well as for governments. Security Insights asked Mike Seward, Kinetic's Chief Technology Officer, to explain more. The whole grey zone uh, phenomenon, which is quite often referred to as hybrid warfare as well, is a really uh, interesting and developing phenomenon in terms of uh, next generation warfare tactics. And, and we believe that, you know, in terms of looking at our portfolio of capabilities that we're developing within Kinetic, that, um, you know, military users especially uh, and organizations in general need to be much more aware now of a different type of warfare that's uh, occurring. And that warfare is, you know, not in a, in a traditional state anymore. Uh, it can use non-state actors as well. There can be elements of non-direct conflict. And in a way, I would, I would describe it as a 21st century version of the old Cold War tactics, uh, where now in the 21st century, adversaries have got much more accessibility to new technologies without the need for large capital programs. And they can have, obviously, quite a devastating effect. What we're looking at here is nation states examining the levers of power and then thinking that perhaps you know conventional conflict is probably not sustainable and won't achieve their objectives or that using other means whether that's diplomatic whether that's disinformation or whether that's cyber warfare or cyber attacks allows them to achieve some or even most of those aims at a much lower cost. As you say, proxy attacks have been around for um, a while as a, as a method of warfare. I think within the report itself, we, we talk about five modes of, of hostility, uh, deniable attacks, uh, information operations, uh, economic cohesion and territorial uh, encroachment as well as other elements of, of, of attack. And I think really what's starting to happen is that uh, adversaries are now recognizing that there are different methods that they can employ. And as such, that you, you don't need to have uh, a, a direct conflict to have quite a significant attack on a, a particular state. I mean, uh, if you only look at the, the impact of COVID-19 and the, and the economic impact that's had across the world, it illustrates really what can happen uh, when large uh, impacts to the social fabric of countries or the economic fabric of countries are in place. So the use of new technologies nowadays uh, and uh, emerging technologies can ultimately um, really uh, uh, 
affect and impact uh, uh, countries in, in a way that people just didn't really think was possible 10, 15, 20 years ago. So where are we seeing this geographically or even across sectors? And where are we likely to see it develop or intensify? Well, I think the real complication here is that uh, we're seeing a much broader um, uh, impact of this type of tactic from from non-traditional actors. So you could say uh, typically, and and has been on record, uh, China and Iran have been called out publicly for a number of denial of service attacks or uh, quite often intellectual property breaches, whereby they're using information technology to to breach uh, in, uh, information uh, uh, intellectual property and and essentially steal information from others. And and that and there's been a number of public um, stories around that. But I think the the real difficulty is that nowadays uh, non-state actors are becoming much more relevant as well. Um, so you've got areas of terrorism, et cetera, et cetera. And, and anybody who, who has access to a keyboard, if you like, um, and, and some smart uh, software development resource can actually have quite a, or a more significantly devastating effect than those with a, a, a traditional set of military capabilities such as weapons and, and guns in that sense. So, so I think actually um, the, the spectrum of, of adversaries is, is much, much wider than it's ever been before. And that makes it even more complicated to um, think about defensive tactics against, uh, against that type of adversary. So this is organisations or outfits that are being grouped together as non-state actors. But then again, part of the grave zone thinking is that the connections between these non-state actors and sponsor states is quite blurred. That's right. It, it absolutely can be. Um, and I think I think that's the, in a way, the genius of the whole grey zone model. It's, it is blurred. It is uh, it is unclear. And I think with the, the advancement in, in a number of technologies, especially, you know, for example, uh, information and communication based technologies, you know, as as we've seen in the press, uh, the, the the nature of encryption nowadays to obfuscate uh, communication between uh, peer to peer communication uh, platforms is 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 phenomenal. And and as such, that causes so many issues around uh, understanding exactly what's happening from where. So you're right, it, is, it does create a complicated landscape. And you're looking at this initially, at least from the point of view of defence, security and government. Um, are those the organisations that are closest to the front line here? Well, I think, um, you know, it, it, it's obvious to assume in a way uh, defence and, and national security are, are the focus areas. I think in terms of offensive tactics, then that's clear. Uh, but in terms of defensive uh, tactics against uh, grey zone conflict, I think, to be quite honest with you, any, every industry could be impacted. So, for example, uh, financial uh, as a sector is uh, underpinning, you know, large parts of the of of the global economy. So, you know, attacking financial services assets can cripple nations quite effectively. Uh, and so, actually, every industry needs to be relevant to this type of attack. And and what that starts to uh, re- require is much more collaboration and information sharing across. Uh, both industry sectors and also government departments in order to uh, work together to um, defend against this type of attack. Now, clearly, this is not only about cybersecurity. You've already mentioned the ability to infiltrate and potentially hold territory, which is a, a military 
or at least an armed operation for the most part. Um, But we're also seeing cyber fit into this and we're seeing disinformation fit into this and the use of social media. And increasingly, those two things are blurring as well, aren't they? You know, social media platforms are all built from software, which is built from data assets, which can be ultimately manipulated. Um, We're then using mobile apps every day in our day-to-day lives. We're communicating now over a uh, over a, over a communication platform, which is again all built around software, and and, and what you're seeing with military capability, uh, whether it's the next generation fighter jets, whether it's uh, land platforms or naval platforms, is more and more software being integrated into um, traditional military capability. So so as such. Um, you know that the advent of all of that requires us to be, to assure software technology in a, in a much more effective way, so that it isn't vulnerable to attack. But like I say, it's also about making sure we're sharing and collaborating between industry and government around uh, methods of attack. We talked a fair bit about software here, and we talked about cyber services, but there are other areas as well, other capabilities that are very relevant to the grey zone tactics, and just to call out a couple just uh, to, to illuminate them. I mean, we're seeing uh, advancements now in uh, what we call novel weapons. Uh, and so if you think about in the defence sector, conventional weapons uh, through the use of uh, uh, missiles, et cetera, et cetera, which have an effect on a target, I think what we're, what we're now starting to see is the advent of uh, direct, directed energy weapons uh, and as such, the manipulation of energy to have an impact on a target can be much more precision in its use. It can have less of a, uh, an effect around the particular target. Uh, and as such, it can operate by essentially stealth tactics. So using a laser, for example, to have an effect on a target can be done silently, largely, as, a, as opposed to um, a conventional um, missile. So, so as such, you know, we talked about cyber as a method of attack, but there are a number of other uh, areas as well, which uh, through the use of new technologies, where you can also have uh, quite a devastating attack on a And we have seen specific cyber attacks against military targets and semi-military targets. Stuxnet is probably the best known, but it's not the only one. Is that something that you've analysed and said, this is a growing danger to military infrastructure in particular because there is so much more software in the systems now? And, you know, you can disable the software, then you can't move on to operations and any kinetic effect with software becoming so let's just say integrated with all forms of uh, capability nowadays then it, it is fundamentally an enabler and so therefore if that software does get impacted then you are in effect disabling that capability so that's that's absolutely an interesting angle but i think also uh, if you look at the electromagnetic spectrum um cyber is is, is an area where we've got quite a lot of understanding of, but I think the other areas of electromagnetic uh, manipulation are also quite interesting. So, for example, you know, if there is a critical national infrastructure asset, um, could be a power substation or it could be a set of compute power within a data center. I mean, there are methods available which are actually uh, all on the all on the internet around how you can manipulate manipulate microwave energy in a directed form to have quite a devastating effect on compute power in a particular critical national infrastructure asset. And and then you're not using cyber. So whilst cyber is you know a method of attack, 
uh, it is quite known, it is quite well protected with a lot of critical national infrastructure assets, but actually the manipulation of energy in a targeted way can have an equally uh, devastating attack. And the, and the impact on a, on a data center provider uh, or any critical national infrastructure organization that's got a lot of compute power can be devastating because they don't understand that uh, an attack is happening in the same way as you do with a cyber attack. I mean, with cyber attacks, you do have more um, classic defense uh, uh, and you, you tend to know if an attack is uh, occurring with uh, other forms of electromagnetic activity. They can be completely stealth-like in their nature. Yeah, and indeed, sometimes the cyber is the, the gateway into a system and then the impact on that system could be carried out by different actors. So it could be, as you said, an electromagnetic attack. It could be allowing people to go into a building because the, the building's perimeter security, physical security, has been taken down by a computer-based attack in the first instance. And the other aspect in the report, though, that you mentioned is, is uh, secure communications and also navigation systems. And obviously command and control is critically important in a military environment, but not just in a military environment, as we're seeing at the moment with COVID. Secure comms and navigation is a really interesting area. I mean, if you, if you think about it, uh, again, outside of the, the defence sector, uh, navigation um, and GPS is used uh, absolutely everywhere for everything. I mean, you, you may have a, uh, a, a watch which is tracking your run at the weekend. You may have a car that is navigating for your parents that you went to last week. You know, so you've got GPS navigation is in place everywhere. Now, if you think about it in terms of uh, uh, grey zone tactics manipulating GPS uh, it could have an absolutely devastating um, and as such you know uh, we need to make, make sure that we're protecting against that and also thinking about other methods of navigation that is not solely reliant on on GPS as a underpinning technology um, it's, a, it's a really interesting area and it, it is how reliant we are sometimes on on some of these core technologies in as you say not just the military space but in multiple sectors across across the world but also in in the way that we live our day-to-day lives oh that's absolutely true isn't it and you know it's been said before that a simple disruption of something such as the atm network would disable a country's economy fairly quickly because again we're still very reliant on cash or the ability of banks to accept payment cards which again is a computer-based system looking at the motivation what do adversaries stand to gain from operating in the gray zone given that it, it does bring with it considerable risks still even if it's not the risks of military action when you're looking at what what uh, adversaries have to gain it, it could be it's like what, what what is there to gain from any form of warfare i think the, the key thing is that uh, with the change in in gray zone tactics one of the key things that they have to gain is information actually so whereas in traditional conflicts you're having an effect on someone and you're wanting to essentially uh, attack a, a, an enemy uh, i think now it's actually uh, about retrieving and uh, gaining uh, information advantage uh, on your adversary and i think um uh, as i mentioned before denial of service attacks uh, stealing intellectual p- property manipulating information um it's 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 totally possible through the technologies available to have to just more subtly have a uh, have an impact on a particular outcome without necessarily uh, having an overt attack, and so I think the the overall outcome is to create, I guess, more devastation through through um, 
at a, at a wider level than just a, a traditional conflict, really. What does this mean, though, for cybersecurity teams in particular? So starting perhaps with defence government and critical national infrastructure. All departments, whether you're in government uh, or critical national infrastructure, need to be relevant to cyber skills. Uh, and cyber skills are in demand. And I think that is one of the challenges that we lay out in the report, actually. So, you know, whether you're in national security, whether you're in uh, the MOD in defence, whether you're in financial services, uh, it really illustrates a, a, a real a pent-up demand for cyber skills to uh, defensive techniques against particular attacks. And that's, you know, really, really important that we as a, as a nation think about how we're going to invest in those skills uh, and actually ensure that all sectors um, have access to them in order to provide uh, support. Uh, like I said earlier, I think uh, part of the equation is also about um, collaboration and information sharing. And I think that's uh, absolutely uh, critical as well. But also offensive use of cyber. Um, you know, it's, it's again, uh, publicly that the Americans are, uh, are investing heavily in cyber offensive uh, centers. And I think, um, you know, we've, we've got our, you know, traditional uh, frontline commands uh, within the UK and obviously within strategic commands. There's a lot more happening now within, uh, within this particular area. But I think it really does illustrate that uh, for us to be on the front foot, we need to also, as a nation, uh, invest heavily in this type of technology and the skill sets that are behind them in order to um, maintain relevance. And in the research, you've identified six common challenges for defence and security, of which one is skills. Um, is it worth just running through those and looking at how they fit together? The skills is, um, is a real key challenge because I think with defence previously, a lot of the uh, technologies and services are, are, were quite bespoke to defence. For example, not many people need a submarine in um, their uh, in their in their you know in their day to day lives. So, so actually, when you're thinking about the uh, technologies such as cyber, there is clearly going to be a demand there. And I think the challenge for defence is how do you attract the right skills to the defence sector? when those same skills could be working for financial services or for the information technology or for retail, because everybody's after the same skills. Some of the other challenges that we call out in the report, uh, we talk about uh, adapting at pace. Uh, and again, I think, uh, I think everybody is uh, well aware that uh, technology is uh, progressing at a, an absolutely rapid pace. I mean, the last 10 to 15 years, significant changes. So, so I think... I think behaviourally, I would say, people need to recognise that things are moving at a quicker pace. And as such, uh, how they adapt to that pace is absolutely critical. Um, and that's a real challenge for, for defence in particular, um, to make sure that essentially from a procurement po uh, perspective and a commercial perspective, that they can actually instantiate new programmes uh, quickly as opposed to the more traditional programmes of the past. Um, we also call out covert capabilities as another challenge there. Um, I think that's another a key area where, um, where uh, new capabilities can add covert uh, properties to them. And as that example I gave you earlier around uh, directed energy is a good example of how to have an effect on a target in a covert way. 
Um, improving threat detection is another one that we've called out. Uh, and again, we've talked about that a fair bit in terms of, especially from a cyber point of view, how you actually uh, uh, detect threats in an unconventional way there. Uh, cyber resilience is is another area and i think we've 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 talked a, f- a fair bit about that and then also the, the 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 final area from the six that we refer to there is creating an information advantage and this is absolutely critical really because if you think that all of these um new technologies and capabilities they're all got some form of sensors or sensing capability and it's creating mass uh, arrays of data and, and from that data, you can derive information. And from that information, you can derive ins. And I think really the key thing for the defense sector, national security, and other sectors as well, quite frankly, is, is having uh, an information advantage on top of your, uh, over your adversary or in the, in the, in the area of uh, non-defense over your com- compare. Uh, and you can see that um, through through great examples in the retail sector where, you know, lots of large-scale retailization to drive uh, essentially information advantage over their competitors through loyalty programs, understand uh, buying power and buying behavior. And the the challenge is exactly the same in defense, really, which is uh, leveraging all of that data to drive the right insight and providing insight to the uh, operational teams effectively, you know, getting rid of unnecessary information and actually really focused critical information that's going to make a significant difference to operational comes. And that's what we sort of refer to in Kinetic as as our as mission-led innovation, really, really thinking about what are the outcomes that we're wanting to use this information for and how are they going to um, uh, have an impact. And given, though, how complex uh, particularly supply chains are now and how interdependent organisations are, how far does this analysis affect the decision-making in boards and in cybersecurity teams in non-defence, non-security, non-CNI organisations, and particularly finance, the supply chain, but also areas such as, say, human resources, where, again, an organisation can only continue for so long if, for example, it's unable to recruit or bring on board new staff or new contractors? I think it's a great point, this. And um, and actually, I don't personally think there's enough being done across the supply chain in these areas. So, um, you know, as we've talked about in, in this podcast so far, you know, there's the, the skill set required for uh, information technology, uh, cyber uh, etc is is significant and it's common so therefore i think it, it provides number one a, a really rich ecosystem of organizations who can supply services so the, the the bonus there is you no longer need to rely on your traditional organizations and i think what we're seeing with hyperscale cloud providers such as amazon uh, microsoft google etc is they're, they're investing heavily in uh, large-scale com- compute power. And what that's allowing is small to medium-sized enterprises to uh, leverage the capital investment from those organizations, but also leverage that compute power to actually allow their software developers to create quite niche capabilities, um, all related to uh, what we've been talking about today. The onus is on the organizations, including, of course, uh, organizations in defense to to attract the right talent uh, to be relevant um, to this challenge. But given that this problem is only going to intensify 
at least that's the prediction. How does an IT director or a CISO recognize firstly a grey zone threat, then respond to it and looking forward also protect against future threats when it's again so difficult sometimes to identify where the threat is coming from and the shape and form and even who's behind it? Well, I think the key thing for any um, uh, CIO or CISO is, is really looking at, at partners who can help. So, you know, they don't have to uh, fix everything themselves. I think there are a lot of organizations out there in the in the supply chain who can add value. And and really, I think that the power comes from um, establishing strong value networks through a, a rich ecosystem to, to contribute to, to a particular problem. And, and we're seeing that more and more now. So more organizations, there's much more collaboration across, um, certainly with Kinetic and our supply chain, we work with a, a whole number of uh, small to medium-sized enterprises as well as lo- larger organizations as well. And that's great because it's really, it's diversifying that uh, landscape. It's bringing new people, new capabilities, but with a shared mission in mind. I think uh, for any organization, leveraging the ecosystem is absolutely critical um, because, quite frankly, not everyone can employ the, the levels of people as we, as we talked about. I think, again, more progressive approaches to uh, recruitment uh, and sustaining uh, uh, and attracting individuals to organizations is, is a key factor as well. Um, but I think I would say, uh, that, that, like I say, one of the most important things is, is is really just recognizing that the ecosystem is important. Uh, everyone has value to play, and it's about actually leveraging and maximizing that ecosystem, understanding how it can add value to your organization. That's uh, that's critical moving forward. But you have also spotlighted, though, the need to use emerging technologies to counter, in particular, deniable attacks. So what form would that take, and what level of investment are we talking about here? Well, I think uh, emerging technologies in general, um, there's a lot of organizations that are experimenting with emerging technologies. And I think what one of the things that uh, Kinetic are very keen on, on, on is a sort of co-investment approach as well, whereby, you know, um, and then that really is in the spirit of collaboration, right? So it's this where, you know, organizations are co-investing together to solve challenges. Because uh, if we go back to those, those, uh, the, that point I raised earlier around at pace quite often uh, if you think about it in a traditional sense uh, you know you can't spend the time to write down a set of requirements and to put that out to tender and then to get an org- organizations to compete and and so on and so forth because that that just takes such a long period of time so i think what we're starting to really push on uh, and see a lot within it, uh, the our ecosystem now is this whole approach of, around co-creation uh, and co-investment, whereby we're getting our joint teams together uh, at the front end of, of challenges to think about how we leverage emerging technologies uh, to be really, really focused on those uh, customer challenges and then to iterate them using sort of minimum viable product uh, methods uh, in a way which is quite different to what has been done in the past. And and it's that partnership between industry and uh, and and government that's really then allowing a much more progressive approach to problem solving leveraging the best of emerging technologies that exist across uh, a wide ecosystem and i think organizations that get that equation right uh, are more likely to be on the front foot in this uh, new 21st century uh, warfare 
So collaboration will be increasingly important. Now, I appreciate that we've only really touched on the surface of what is quite an in-depth piece of research. Where can listeners get hold of the report? Um, if uh, listeners were able to navigate over to uh, www.kinetic.com, that's spelled Q-I-N-E-T-I-Q.com, uh, then you'll see on there access to our Insight program and the Grey Zone report um, is there for people to download, as is a lot of other work that we've got around our Insights programs as well. It's certainly good food for thought for people, whether you're in the defence space or outside of the defence space, because I think it's a challenge that we've all got in terms of keeping abreast of uh, 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 new technologies, new approaches and, and new ways of working. Kinetics Mike Seward on how cooperation between industry and government will be the key to improving security, especially in a world where the boundaries between peace and conflict are less and less clear. That, though, is all for this week's episode. We'll be back in two weeks' time on Tuesday, December the 1st, with a special report on Zero Trust. I hope you can join us then. Meanwhile, you can catch up on past programmes on our website, securityinsights.co.uk, and of course, on iTunes and Google Podcasts. Thanks again for listening.